This is a Federal News Network podcast. Appropriators on Capitol Hill have a busy week this week, the first official week of summer. For one thing, House members are marking up the 2023 defense budget and taking up the defense authorization bill. We get the latest from WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And so does this mean no CR? They're going to be all done, Mitchell? <laughs> That's some very wishful thinking, Tom. No, that does not mean that. But we'll walk through it a little bit. Uh, Wednesday is going to be a really big day uh, for the Pentagon budget. Uh, lawmakers with the House Appropriations Committee are going to take it up. The uh, House Armed Services Committee is going to be taking it up as well. That's that marathon session that happens every year. Democratic leaders basically looking to try to support the president's 4% increase in the military spending uh, with a bill of around $770 billion, uh, with the total bill, everything included, of more than $800 billion with defense authorization. Uh, now, that would be an increase of tens of billions of dollars, and it would also increase the military pay raise by 4.6%. But some Republicans and centrist Democrats say that because of inflation soaring, that's just not going to be enough. Among those pushing for an increase is Virginia Congresswoman Elaine Luria, who just says the amount of money in this budget isn't enough to cover inflation. Got it. And then, of course, there's the civilian side. And are the appropriators back to work on that one at all yet? They are. There is. There has been some work on that. The Appropriations Committee last week uh, moved through a lot of different pieces of legislation. So there has been progress on that front, which we haven't been able to report until recently. Among the many things that are included in that uh, is uh, funding for the Capitol Police budget. Uh, they're going to, or at least propose to get about $700 million dollars that would be an increase of $100 million. So there has been some movement on that front. It does look like they have made probably the most progress that they've made all year just in the last few weeks. But again, as we go back to that continuing resolution, it really looks like there's a lot of optimism on the Democratic side, but less so uh, among centrist Democrats and uh, Republicans, uh, Democrats, Democratic leaders would like this all to be wrapped up in a bow and in a budget uh, by August. But I just don't see that's going to happen, even though we've had some significant progress related to this. Could part of the issue be that the Republicans smelling the fact that they might be able to take over the House and Senate after the midterms would prefer a CR so that they could do the budget work next year and get more of their priorities in line? You have thrown the dart right into the bullseye, Tom, for sure. That is exactly what they're looking at. House Republicans really know that they are going to overtake the House. It's just a matter of how many uh, votes, there, how many lawmakers are going to be included in that. Right now, the margin is 12 for the Democrats. Uh, there are estimates that it could flip anywhere from 30 to even 50 seats uh, onto the Republican side. So they say, well, why should we rush this if we know that we're more than likely going to have power in the House, have a new Republican House speaker? So they are putting the brakes on some of these proposals to get it through. And then meanwhile, on the Senate side, you have an even bigger increase proposal for defense. So that's another complicating factor. Uh, James Inhofe, the outgoing ranking Republican, uh, really wanted a big, beefy defense uh, proposal there. So a lot of moving parts, as always, and uh, as always, politics playing a role here. 
We're speaking with WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller and getting close to the parochial federal agency issues. Telework is back in discussion now, and it looks like some of the members want to kind of get clarification and maybe some progress on what final telework policy might be for federal employees. That's right. As you know, Virginia Congressman Jerry Connolly has been a big booster on this, but he really wants to get uh, the metrics related to telework so that it's not just uh, an anecdotal type of thing where they say, well, it really helps all these agencies. So he is joined with Maryland Congressman John Sarbanes to propose legislation that would effectively get metrics exactly on how these uh, telework policies are working or not working and to show that they are working in his view. Uh, This is legislation called the Telework Metrics and Cost Savings Act. Uh, Basically, they argue that this legislation would make a case for telework and it actually moved through the uh, House Oversight and Reform Committee last week. It does have strong support from Democrats. On the Republican side, uh, some people say, well, wait a second, what about these agencies that have had to move back and forth during the pandemic? They feel that some of these rules, at least proposed, are a little too stringent. For example, if an agency were to go to a lot of telework and then need to get back to getting more people into the office, they worry that this could hamstring some of these agencies. Uh, Among the examples they point to is the IRS, which, uh, as we both know, has a huge backlog of all kinds of paperwork that needs to be done. And a lot of it has to be done in person or somehow to get people in the office to do that. So uh, a little bit of back and forth here, but another interesting development related to telework. Well, I know in the private sector, they're still kind of wrestling with the whole issue. I know of one good-sized D.C. employer, actually Northern Virginia, that went from three mandatory days in the office to two just because people, employees were leaving and demanding it. Right. Yeah, and that's what a lot of these agencies are wrestling with. They have actually... Many of them have made improvements with telework and have gotten more people to work from home. But now that pendulum is shifting back, as you know, in connection with the pandemic. So a lot of these agencies are trying to figure out exactly how they can kind of move one way and be flexible in certain respects, uh, just like parts of the private sector. are. And you're also reporting some progress on the GSA and its search for, here we go again, FBI headquarters location. <laughs> I thought that was decided back when Barbara Mikulski was still a senator. (laughs) That's right. Deja vu all over again, as Yogi Berra would say. Um, But we are uh, back kind of to square one with the FBI headquarters. Uh, The FBI headquarters, of course, under the Trump administration, they wanted to keep the headquarters Uh, rebuild it, but do the headquarters in D.C. on Pennsylvania Avenue. Now Virginia and Maryland lawmakers are saying, well, let's get this thing going again. So they had a uh, call last week with the General Services Administration, uh, GSA, assuring them that uh, several sites in our area still remain on the board as possibilities. Springfield, Virginia, Landover and Greenbelt, Maryland. Not surprisingly, lawmakers from both states are praising this, saying that maybe this could show that uh, a decision could come soon and that they could actually start getting a lot of the economic development and uh, a lot of the economic progress that they think that a new FBI headquarters in the suburbs could make. Uh, The Maryland delegation specifically, led by Steny Hoyer, the House Majority Leader, 
is calling on the GSA to make a final decision on this uh, in the fall, uh, just like the uh, optimism about the continuing resolution. I think that is also a rather optimistic call since we are talking about something that, as you just <laughs> pointed out, goes back years and years. And no truth to the rumors that the FBI headquarters could be tied to the location of the Washington commandos. <laughs> no, that's absolutely right. All right. And by the way, how are things back on Capitol Hill itself? Summer is officially underway now today. And, you know, the whole idea of tourists and touring the Capitol, what's going on there? Well, it's really interesting. You do definitely see a lot more groups here on Capitol Hill, which is nice to see because it's always been that way. Big school groups. The other day I saw hundreds of future farmers of America from all across the country, all these young people coming into D.C., The thing is, people don't really realize, and you still see tourists coming up to the Capitol saying, can I just kind of walk in, that it is still restricted. And that was uh, pointed out last week uh, on a day that uh, after there was a January 6th hearing, many hours later into the evening, uh, there was actually a crew from CBS's Late Show with Stephen Colbert. They had been given permission to do some interviews and do some shooting in the uh, with video in, in the Longworth building, but they were there so long that when Capitol Police encountered them, they actually charged them. And uh, so we'll see how that gets sorted out. But it just shows that there are still restrictions in all of the Capitol complex. And actually, a lot of people don't realize that the Capitol Visitor Center Uh, remains technically closed, and the Capitol Police, as well as the uh, Senate Sergeant-at-Arms, have indicated that that may not fully reopen, believe it or not, until 2023. Well, all right, so don't make any big plans that involve being being in the (laughs) interior of the Capitol. In the meantime, Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. As always, thanks so much. You bet. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to it? as a leader, and what about them inspired you? you no, know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just 
really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village. That was, I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, you know, I think my my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my 
bachelor's and my master's in leadership because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.